Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 13 of Middle Brow Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Godai. This is Isabel Arf. I have, uh, I'm starting a little bit more formally today because okay. I, I solemnly have to make a, an announcement or an apology from last week. So, oh, I, I like this new direction that you're going, uh, going in where you introduce yourself right after I introduce myself. So uh, what's, the, uh, what's the thing that you've got to rectify? Well, last week, I was listening back to the episode, and in the episode twice, within like a two-minute span, I say something is back, baby. And <laughs> one of those things was for Borat, and I'll never apologize for saying that Borat is, Borat is back, baby, because sure. Borat is a masterpiece of modern consumer culture. It's a masterpiece of art. It's a masterpiece of the form. It shits on Michelangelo. It <laughs> says that Monet is trash. Derek, when I when I watch Borat, you know when he says my wife? Yeah, I'm familiar. Part, I just I laugh so hard I just nut everywhere. It's <laughs> oh, oh man, those who subscribe for the cum talk are going to be very happy. But whatever the other thing I said that was back baby, that wasn't back baby. It's only Borat. Borat's the only thing that's back. And in the future, I promise not to make this same mistake again. <laughs> Do you remember the other thing that was back in? Fuck no, I don't. It was something. <laughs> it was something not as good as Borat, Derek. That's all that matters. It was some bullshit, I guess. Okay, but yes. So uh, this time, sorry, no, no fun readings today. Just an apology. <laughs> so a- as an act of contrition, you're not going to have this long meandering uh, text from the asshole of the internet. Um. Hey, you know, not not today. We'll uh, we'll keep it serious today. We'll keep it simple. Um. And I think uh, we're ready for you to kind of just tell us what this podcast is about. Yes, I, I, I am. I am highly suspicious of you just handing over the reins to me. So I don't know easily. why that would be, Derek. <laughs> All right, well, let's get to it anyway, because uh, I, I, I seem to have defaulted into being the 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 straight man in this broadcast. Well, I mean, literally. <laughs> I mean, yes, but also yes, yes, um, also comedically. Middle brow madness. So what? The Erectile fuck? dysfunction hex. Jesus. This Christ. spell is intended to be used by women. Only mm. this hex will make sure your partner won't be able to perform in another one's bed. Parentheses hoodoo it, spell. I knew you will need the coming, following items for this off. spell: length of red cord or ribbon. Casting instructions for erectile dysfunction hex. Time: full or waning moon. Day: Friday or Saturn. Hour: Venus or Saturn. Um. So what you do is you measure your lover's penis and cut the cord length to that measurement, starting at the center of the cord. Tie nine equidistant knots, saying with each one. With this knot to me, you're tied. Only for me shall you rise. Only for me shall you grow. And if wild oats you try to sow, limp and flaccid you shall be until you come back to me. Carry the cord with you at all times and your lover won't be able to perform another woman's bed. Is this a dick curse? It's absolutely a dick curse. Well, it's a hex, to be fair. It's not quite a curse. Okay, it, I thought it is a dick hex. I thought in like the, 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 the common parlance of the internet, you were saying hacks, H-A-C-K-S, but you were saying hex. No. 
No, this is, an, this is this is from spellsofmagic.com, Derek. This is serious business. Spells of magic? It seems spells redundant. of <laughs> magic. Well, I mean, you could have like a, a spell of like dizziness. Sure. To be fair. Sure. A, a spell of ensorcelment. Um, but spells of magic. I'm having something... a spell of I'm having a spell of confusion right now. I mean, I knew this was coming. I'm you still managed to piss me off. <laughs> well, I just wanted to like bring up spells of magic early on this podcast run because it's the best website I've ever been on. Um, I okay. highly recommend all of our listeners go to spellsofmagic.com and look up everything you can because some of them are almost real spells and some of them are like how to turn yourself into a dinosaur. So, like. Like, uh, how to turn yourself in, in a dinosaur, like, metaphorically? Um, let me pull that one up so we can <laughs> read through it real quick. It's just called Dinosaur, and uh, there's a picture of a Spinosaurus here on the page. Um, <laughs> and the, the uh, short description is, this spell will turn you into a dinosaur. Uh, four four out of five anything. stars. It's got uh, decent ratings. Um, okay. Do you want to know how to do this? Do I want to know how to turn into a dinosaur? Sure. Uh, maybe? I mean, how, I guess my question is, how long is it? It's relatively short. Okay, let's go for it. Okay, so you will need the following items for this spell. Number one, a paper. Sure. Uh, number two, pen slash pencil. Okay. Number three, colored pencil slash crayons. Okay, so shit just that I would have in like a six-year-old's bedroom. <laughs> Anyone can cast a spell, Derek. And then sure, um, sure. number four is a ruler, parentheses 12 inches, has to be minimum a foot long ruler or a tape measure. It's up to you. So, um, this is all shit I have do? in my closet. <laughs> so you can cast this spell. You can become a dinosaur, Derek. I'm giving you all the hot tips. Hot dog. So, um, casting instructions. You first, you draw the dinosaur you want to be. Uh, okay. I'm assuming on the paper. It doesn't say exactly, but you do. Mm. Um, place the height and length. I'm assuming like of the dinosaur and not like of the paper, but sure. Um, color it in fold paper hamburger style, <laughs> which. I like fold that there's a magic spell style? that says fold paper hamburger style. Oh, fold paper hamburger style. That makes much more sense. Yes, fold paper hamburger style, uh, like you do for magic spells sometimes. Write your info. So name, type of dino, scale color, eye color, behavior slash personality, your diet, etc. Is Hold on. Time out. I hate to break your flow. <laughs> but is um, folding paper hamburger style re- really like witches are go? What? Is it really like like a thing that witches say? <laughs> I mean, it, it's a, it's on spellsofmagic.com. So, oh man, that's all I can say from there. I will say that it did disappointment that it didn't say like fold paper twice vert wise or something fun. Mm. It just it sounds like a craft experience, like a craft uh, that you would do with a child. It sounds suspiciously like a craft you would do with a child. Well, the next part's not. The next part's got like spells on it. So okay, um, so uh, you write. And say at the same time, dinosaurs, 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 I wish to be a dinosaur. I want to be a, and then you say the name of the dinosaur, so like say Ankylosaurus. Sure. My scale color shall be blue, whatever color you want it to be. And my eyes shall be shining gold, again, whatever color you want. I don't know why the eyes are such a big focus. I feel like that's just a thing that the author threw in. It's the um, window, uh, they're the windows to the dinosaur soul, don't you know? Yeah, <laughs> um, or dino um, soul, as it were. And the sp- you end the spell by saying, "God grant me my wish to be. I wish to be a dinosaur. So mote it be." And it says here specifically that "so mote it be" should be written as big as you can. And then after this, you fold the paper hamburger style again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, you draw a pentagram. Then you fold it once more. 
Every night for three nights, chant this first. I'm assuming as you before you go to sleep. It doesn't really say specifically. It's not the best written spell. Um, but it says chant this first. God, please let me be the dinosaur I wish to be. Then chant dinosaurs, dinosaurs, dinosaurs. I wish to be a dinosaur. And you say the same spell you already said. Then you kiss the paper, put it on your pillow. As you fall asleep, you'll dream of you being a dinosaur. But the side effects of this are uh, your eyes will change color. Assuming to, I'm assuming to whatever if color you. Yeah. Uh, your skin will change color. I'm sure. also assuming to like whatever color you wanted it to be. Headaches and toothaches and nausea. Um, tailbone because aches. Because your shit changes, I guess. I guess. Uh, tailbone aches, back aches, longer nails. But this is all depending on what dinosaur you want it to be, assuming the dinosaur has claws. Taller, longer, and stronger. Those are all things you can get from this dinosaur spell. A couple things. <laughs> I I can't imagine <laughs> what issues you would have, but go on. The piece of paper that you're going to need to do everything that you need to do on that piece of paper has got to be fucking big. Like, you need, like, you need, like... Like, like butcher paper. Like, like, a giant... Yeah, butcher paper, like, one of those giant, uh, like, charcoal sketch pads. <laughs> um... Ah, God, I don't even know where to fucking start with this. And I feel like that's going to be a refrain for the length of our show. Um, how about I pivot it back? How about I pivot it back into just movies just, or at least try? Real quick, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to say that there's also one f- spell for breast enlargement rated five out of five stars. Mm. Um, where the instructions are, the things you need for the spell, the, the, the like equipment you need. You must be naked. You must be a girl. It must be noon. And you have to have a supervisor. Because... <laughs> What you do is you just stand in your backyard at noon and say you want bigger breasts, and then you turn around to the other person and you're like, "Hey, are my breasts bigger?" Or is like, "How's it? How's it look?" And they say yes, and that's this the spell. So- this sounds like someone's plan to see someone naked <laughs> got way out of hand. <laughs> like, hey, I got I got an idea. It's a little unconventional, but follow me down this rabbit hole. So it's like this I was is on like- spellsofmagic.com the other night, and I happened to see. There's a spell for your exact problem, my crush. This sounds like some kind of like shot on video Porky's ripoff garbage. Like if there was like a Wiccan Porky's. I not not gotta Google Wiccan Porky's. There has God. to be, right? I mean, there's a lot of things in this universe that I don't understand. So why why wouldn't why wouldn't sort of Wiccan specific uh boner comedies be an exception to that? <laughs> Um, so the only thing I, f- I found that was of use when I Googled Wiccan Porkies sure. is, uh, there's a blog called the Pagan Library, or I guess they have some books as well, but on their blog, they have a bunch of like, um, <laughs> they have a bunch of like, you might be a redneck if jokes, but for Wiccans. <laughs> <laughs> See, that I would have imagined would have been a thing. Um, it's good stuff. I almost want to like, this could be the rest of the episode. Uh, please let it not be. We have four movies to talk about. Okay, let's let's get those. So, Middle Brow Madness. What we madness. do on this madness emphasis on madness. We've got the um, madness part down, Pat. Yeah, ma- Middle Brow, not so much. What with all, uh, not what with all the subject matter we've been talking well, about. Well, Wicca but, is the Middle Brow of magic. To be fair, is, is Wicca the Middle Brow of magic? I will defer Absolutely. to you in that in in uh, yeah, to, to make that call. I don't want to be too mean because we might have some some Wiccan listeners. If that's you, fine. Do your thing. It's just like the most normie kind of magic. I mean, okay, sure. I mean, I, I mean, you could have said anything, and I would have believed you. Middle brow madness. Also, it's 
if, 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 I, if I may for just a moment, it's also like super heterosexist and like cisnormative, which is like not fun, but and also like really appropriative of like other cultures. So if you're Wiccan, just like get into other magic, be like cool. So like, welcome cool to for our like a fucking second. So welcome to our mag- our political magic pod. <laughs> I got opinions, Derek. Uh, there's well, I'll, I think there's got to be political magic pods, right? Oh, absolutely. There like pods on like, the politics of magic. There's actually a YouTuber I follow um, named Angie Speaks, um, and uh, she did a really good video on, hold on, I'm pulling up real quick, on, um, like, the actual politics of witchcraft um, and, like, what it means to, like, specifically, like, non-white communities and communities that have been oppressed historically. Sure. Uh, very good video. I would recommend watching it and also uh philosophy tube did a similar video um that specifically talked about caliban and the witch uh the book by sylvia federici the marxist feminist i'll maybe put those in show notes who knows okay have a look <laughs> um middle brow madness when we started this show we put together a bracket well isabel put together a bracket of the top 250 movies according to the internet movie databases top 250 movies list of all time and we each contributed Three wildcard movies, three ringers, if you will, that uh, met that didn't quite meet the score to make that two fifty. Uh, we also have uh, two. Uh, we also have four vetoes each. Uh, since this is a two-person operation, we will not always agree on who wins any given matchup. So we have these vetoes that we can use. Uh, we've both used one. We both have three. And in case you didn't grok what it was by that description it's a single elimination tournament of all these movies to see which one is the best and we're well on our way to getting close to a quarter of the way through the bracket because we've signed up for this for a long 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 time and uh, i'm gonna be honest a lot uh, there's gonna be a lot more of it dedicated to like weird tangents about magic and uh erectile dysfunction and dirty fan fiction than i would have thought <laughs> but i mean it's all part of the journey isn't it yeah, definitely. Uh, it's I, I got whole book. I got bookmark folders. I got everything ready to go. Um, whenever, whenever I, I can still, throw Derek off, I'm ready to go. You've done so for like the f- past half dozen episodes, and I don't know how I'm going to wrench control back in the first ten seconds because this was a flex. What you did at the top of the show was a flex, <laughs> and I don't know how like, to flex. Say, say, doing what the podcast is supposed to do, where I say my name, was the flex. No, no, no. The part where you, like, did your little bit about relinquishing, like, like you had a bit before your bit. And I knew it was a bit before the bit because it wasn't the main bit. It didn't feel like a main bit. But I've I've got to figure out a way to, like, wrest control of the show immediately as it goes off the rails 30 seconds in. I think even I, if you I, had, like, a mute button for me, it wouldn't actually be that effective. Like, I would have to, like... It would be the worst improv in the world. It would be, like... Uh, hi, my name is Derek Gade, and I immediately just launch into something that has nothing to do with anything. Never saying the words yes and or and. Yes, exactly. It's a no but podcast. No but podcast. Um, but yeah, I like the only way I could conceive that I could like keep control of the show going into it is if I just completely ignore you. Just, just do know. a monologue, basically. Yeah, and I don't think that's good podcasting. <laughs> So, by sheer dint of the fact that you introduce yourself second, you have all this control that you are obviously exercising. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm enjoying the status of not being the, like, podcast host. Uh, uh, always the host, never the guest who gets to do bits. The, you, you volunteered, so. I mean, it's true. I mean, I'm not saying I don't like doing it. <laughs> so, let's talk about some fucking movies, shall we? 
Yeah, we've for got, sure. Some, we've got, some good-ass movies and one bad one, but we'll get to that. I don't know about bad. Less okay, good than yeah, the, okay. Less good less, than the others. Certainly. Less good than the other three. Because uh, we got some heavy hitters today. Uh, so uh, today's matchups, uh, we have uh, Full Metal Jacket versus Fargo and City Lights versus Monsters, Inc. And I think we should probably just get right into it with our first yeah, matchup. Sure. So, uh, tale of the tape real quick. The 94 seed in this tournament, Full Metal Jacket. It released in 1987, directed by one Stanislav Kubrick, starring Matthew Modine, Adam Baldwin, Vincent D'Onofrio, and R. Lee Ermey, based on The Short Timers by Gustav Hasford, uh, $30 million budget, $120 million at the box office, and went zero for one at the Academy Awards, losing out Best Adapted Screenplay. Against number 163 in this tournament, Fargo, released in 1995, directed by Joel Cohen. Uh, solo directing credit on this one because Ethan was producer. So don't you fuckers start emailing me. Um, starring Francis McDormand, William H. Macy, Steve Buscemi, Peter Stormare, among others. Uh, $7 million budget, $60 million at the box office. So pretty decent, pretty decent take. Two for seven at the Oscars winning Best Actress and Best Original Screenplay. I had great difficulty deciding between these two. <laughs> this might be... I mean, we've said a lot of matchups are difficult. This might be the one where the movies are most evenly matched for me. Yeah, um, these are like because I'm I'm 31 and I got into like I quote got into movies relatively late, and these were like two of the first like auteur movies that like really stuck with me, <laughs> mm-hmm. like early on. Yeah, if Full Metal Jacket was a movie I watched a lot as a teenager, as like a 15 or 16 year old. And the thing I'll say about it that most surprised me on this re- rewatching is that it held up in a very different way. Like, I like it as much as I did when I was a teenager, but for totally different reasons sure. and in a totally different way. Um, because as a teen, you you like the first half, half the most, where Arlie Ermey is yelling at people and he says a bunch of really, like, creative insults. And then eventually Gomer Pyle goes uh, wacko and shoots him. Uh, basically yes. Yeah, like yes. when, like when you watch the movie for the first time, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna agree with you on this. The thing that really draws you in is, is uh, Arlie Ermey, because absolutely, he's it, was this his first major role? I think, I think, like I don't have the stats on this. I'm gonna pull it I'm up, it up real too. quick. Arlie, riveting podcasting. Um, I, I mean, think... he was on Deadly Ground. He was, he was in on okay. Deadly Ground. Sorry. Uh, ba, 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 and oh, I, I accidentally sorted by average rating instead of uh, um, release date, which is why I saw On Deadly Ground first because that was the lowest rated film he's been in. Uh, we've got, he was in a couple movies before this, but nothing, nothing uh, major. Wasn't, like, like he was, he in, was in Apocalypse Now, but I don't really remember. He's, he he wasn't credited in that. He he didn't have a name. It was in the Boys and Company C, Up from the Depths and Purple Hearts, but Full Metal Jacket was like the one. And in that same year, he was in an episode of Miami Vice. So I think that that Arlie Ermey had a good 1987. Um, but the thing that I was struck with while rewatching it this time is that the first half I still in, enjoyed, and I still think works really well for what it's trying to do, but it was the second half that wowed me. The yeah, first the half per- doesn't wow me anymore. The second half like kind of blew me away. The thing with the first half is that it, 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 it basically – it does – kind of like at least now it does to me as a viewer what it does to like the recruits it's a relentless uh like it's a relentless hour of just bad shit happening and the second half i think yes holds up a bit better because it's a lot more 
I, I don't want to say nuance. That seems like such a, like a like a, a Olympic thing to say, but I feel like there's more. You, you wouldn't there's be more wrong in that saying that. What's that? You wouldn't be wrong in saying the nu- nuance, though. I wouldn't be wrong. No, like you're saying, you don't want to say that, but I think it's also a correct state, like statement of the second half's intent. And like, I think the reason these halves play well against each other is that the first half is exhausting, is relentless, and then. By the time you get to the second half of the film where they're actually in Vietnam, you're already tired. You're already kind of exhausted. And so is everybody else there. So everybody sure. else is – the way I described this film on Letterboxd was like if um, Apocalypse Now is like the like great acid trip movie of Vietnam. This is like the like booze hangover. Like you had too much whiskey last night or you had like mm-hmm. way too much beer and you mixed your alcohols together and you're just fucking dehydrated and you have a headache and you don't want to move. That's the second half of this film. And I think the first half sets you up by beating you into submission for fully experiencing that second half, how it wants you to experience it. Uh, yes, and I think I, I think I undervalued uh, Matthew Modine's contribution to this film. Like, in the sense that when I started watching this movie, everything else kind of overshadowed him. And he was just kind of like the protagonist and everything was ha- uh, uh, everything was happening around him. Mm-hmm. But now, what, rewatching it for God, this must be like what the tenth time I've seen this movie, but the first time in like several years is like there's like a, a warmth and tragedy, and let's bust out that word again, nuance to Modine's performance that I found very captivating. Like, Cer- go ahead. I was gonna say certainly, and the thing that I think that works really well about him as that central character that is hard to realize until later or until you're a little bit older, um, which I definitely didn't see when I was younger and I watched as a bunch, is that. His the fact that everything happens to him and that he's never he's never directly doing things. He's kind of like following along with things and he's um he's trying to keep his himself out of the muck. He's trying to right. like be above everything. And that's like why he adopts like this persona of of, of Joker, of like always sure. telling jokes, of always um cracking wise is what I was about to say, which <laughs> is the worst way to phrase that. I but, mean, um, I get what you mean. Yes. Um and the second half of the movie is basically him learning that no one's hands are clean and that yeah. it doesn't matter how much you try to stay above this stuff. You're in it. You're here and you're you're as responsible as everyone else. And just because you're cynical and you're cool about it doesn't mean you're actually better than anyone. Sure. And I think that that's what that's what makes the um, the kind of almost I don't want to say turgid negatively. I mean, turgid kind of positive, like the turgid pace of the of the second half of the film works so well. Because you're seeing essentially the disillusionment of this person who's trying to stay apart from the thing he's experiencing. And finally yeah. him coming to actually realize his part in it. And he has people to play off of. Like, obviously, in the first half, you have Vincent D'Onofrio, who's incredible. Um, Arlie right. Ermey, who's also great. And then right. the second half, he has, like, Adam Baldwin, his animal mother, who is, like, a terrible human being, but also kind of fun to watch on screen. A great character. A great character. And... His contrast to those things makes him feel better and it makes almost the viewer feel better. Like, oh, I'm not these people until eventually you have to realize, oh, you, you are those people. Everyone's are hands are people. dirty. Yeah. Oh, man. That, that, that finale, that, that whole last action set piece from the sniper to, uh, to the ambush is fucking heart wrenching. <laughs> it's so, yeah. it's, uh, that's a, and then a, the, the perfect musical cue to end on. Yeah, well, you know, th- this has been said before, and we'll say it again here. The music in this, uh, in this, uh, like, you may not like the individual tracks, 
but I do, and I think the movie, the mu- uh, the music in this movie is very good and also well used. Oh, certainly, and and like using those kind of pop tracks, like those tracks are popular at the time, um, sure. like Surfing Bird and um, uh, what's the one? Uh, something in the Sheiks did what that? What was that song? Uh, hold on. Um, or the Shahs? Oh, 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 oh Sam, Sam the Shah and the Pharaohs. Pharaohs. Yeah. Uh, Wooly Bully. Uh, yes, Wooly Bully. You have like a lot of these really popular songs. Um, and obviously ending, ending on uh, the Mickey Mouse march um, being sung by all the soldiers is not just the dissolution of innocence, which it kind of is, but it's something saying something a lot more complicated than that, which is contrasting the banality of the music that they're hearing, the banality of this music that you've heard a million times and is almost hokey and um, what's and and kitsch, kitsch, sure, yeah, kitsch, and contrasting against the actual lived reality of these people and them trying to distance themselves with this kitsch with these things, um, in a way that I found very effective. How much time we got on the clock still? Um, about a minute. About a minute. Okay, so uh, rapid fire. Uh, this movie looks really good. The score is very good, like this, mm-hmm. especially in the first half, like the chilly synthesizer tones that are used. Uh, I quite liked. Um, I mean, it's like it's it, it's really it's really cannily constructed because you know Stanley Kubrick. That's how he works. Um, but yeah, I always like I always like sort of go back and forth on like when I think about my favorite Kubrick movies. This is always kind of in the conversation. Even though it's like it's not like two thousand one, and it's not like other things. It's like it's always it ha- it has this. It doggedly stays in my mind as like one to consider. It's like I, think I, it's, I feel I feel I can easily overlook this movie, despite the fact that it's great. Absolutely, I think it's it's a little easier to see past the things it does really well than it is to see past two thousand one, or to see past even something like Eyes Wide Shut, or something like in those veins. Those are a little sure. bit more. I mean, saying saying that anything Kubrick does is showy is not quite the right word, but they're a little bit more obvious in um their in their positive moments. Whereas I think Full Metal Jacket, by virtue of being a war film, I think it's the same reason that like Barry Lyndon isn't really thought of as like one of his great films in a lot of ways. It's a little more subtle. I and don't know. I think I think there's a lot of Barry Lyndon backers. I think there are, like the and they're coming up. Like I, th- I think there's becoming more of a thing. But I think in general, like in the, in the popular consciousness, it's not what you think of because not it's not the it has trappings that imply that it's doing something less complex than it is. Does that make sense? Um, I'm not even sure I agree with that, but I think I get it. To be fair, I also haven't seen Barry Lyndon. I've heard good things, but great movie. But I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't watch it for a long time because of the reason of like, uh, it's one of those movies, and I don't want to see one of those movies. Ah, uh, God, it's, that's 75. He does that. Uh, uh, God, is it after uh, Clockwork? Yes. Is it the one he does right after Clockwork? I believe so. Ah, man, it's a good fucking movie. It's a long one, though. You gotta set yourself a day if you want to watch that. It was it was, it was was lit with candles, don't you know? Special lenses and all that. So I've heard. I'm sure, like, once I actually see it, I'll love it. <laughs> it's just, um, like, the reason I bring it up in the same conversation is that I don't think it's as initially exciting or audacious, at least from, like, an outside perspective. Okay, yeah, that I agree with. It's, like, it's 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 virtues require not more patience, but they're not as, like, they don't immediately spring to mind. Exactly. They don't leap off the stream. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about Fargo. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about let's talk about weirdly the underdog in this in this in this in this uh, in this pairing. Which like there's no other situation where I think I would call Fargo an underdog, but no, I agree. I, th- is, I think is this the consensus best Coen Brothers movie? I think if you asked like a general population, yes. 
Either this or No Country. Like, if you family feuded it, and you went, like, what's the best Coen Brothers movie, Fargo would be number one? I think so. Um, Like, I mean, it's that, I think that Big Lebowski or No Country. And Big Lebowski is a little bit more in the back burner. (sighs) Lebowski is a bit more of a culty thing, even though it's absolutely not. Yeah. But, like, uh, Fargo was the one that uh, won them their first Oscar? I could be wrong about that. I think so. Uh, it was, uh, it was definitely Francis McDormand's first Oscar. Uh, yes. we will talk about the other movie she won an Oscar for later in the show. Um, yeah, look, you looking at their filmography, I'd say it's definitely like the one that people think of. This is the one. Okay. Um, so, so this is, God, I can't, like talking about Fargo is weird because, you know, it's fucking Fargo. Um, it's a neo-noir film set in the Great Plains. Uh, you've got. Uh, Bill Macy being super weaselly and scummy. You really threw uh, me there for a second because I've never heard him referred to as Bill before. I Bill said, Macy? Always, always William. William H. Macy. <laughs> I, 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 I'm chummy with him. William Herbert Macy? That's probably not right. Henry probably. Hall. William Hall Macy. Hall, okay. Um, Co-conspirator so- and famous uh, with famous Felicity Huffman. Yes. Um, oh, famous God, criminal Felicity Huffman. Fam- f- famous, famous collegiate, uh, collegiate grifter. Those are two, those two words are hard to say together. Uh, that's a which, whole other. Which, fucking... to be fair, that seems like something that a William H Macy character would do. That's the thing, right? It's like aha, whatever. It seems like something these characters would do, but um, fuck. Which, for for those who haven't seen the film, we should say like a quick summary of the plot, which we didn't do for um, what do you call it? Uh, Full metal jacket. jacket. It's but... Vietnam. It's Vietnam. Vietnam. You've seen Vietnam. People, but go through, for Fargo, people go through basic training and then they go to Vietnam. And my, my reductive but also not reductive plot summary is that uh, William H. Macy makes a bad decision and then everything goes worse from there. Yes. Uh, he hires... In, in almost slapstick form. Yeah, this is a kind of what you would call a dark comedy. Yes. Um, it, it plays its dead bodies in blood for quite a few laughs. <laughs> so he hires Hitman... To mm-hmm. kidnap his wife, who is played by da 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 da, da who fucking plays the wife, Kristen Kristen Rudrud, Rudrud, and um, Man, that is a Minnesota ass name. Looking at it, uh, yeah, definitely. she was born and went to grade school in Fargo, North Dakota. Yeah, you got to cast the locals. Um, so yeah, so there's a kidnapping plot to extort money. Uh, there's some money laundering involved, and uh. Francis McDormand uh, plays Marge Gunderson, a police officer who was on the case. First, uh, there's some dudes who get shot by Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare. It's a whole fuck. It's a whole. It's a whole thing. It's a, a, a hilarious series of murders, is what it is. Yes. Where that that seeing it constantly escalate and go one further than it was before is it never stops being entertaining throughout the film it's just fuck they nothing goes right for anyone involved in the situation it started out as a terrible idea like literally kidnapping your own wife to get blackmail money from her rich father because you've been like stealing cars or or like or like falsely selling cars rather is already bad it's already a bad idea because Jerry Lundergaard no is no uh, great shakes as a car salesman. No. Or as a human being, incidentally. Um, and then from there, it just gets worse and worse and worse. <sighs> For a movie really, like, that's dark as shit, this is a very genial piece of filmmaking. It, it, it's, it's, I almost hate, hesitate to call it a dark comedy because it never feels dark. 
there's a lot of murder in it, but the murder is almost played in like a Looney Tunes kind of way, not with the same exaggerated action, but with the same disregard for the seriousness of the crimes. Sure. Um, and uh, I think that um, the very uh, straight, like straight face performance of Frances McDormand helps sell it as she's, she's like the straight woman throughout, even though she has a bunch of good jokes on her own. But she's sure. reacting to a bunch of people who are the most incompetent people on earth, and she's the only competent person in the room. Yep. It's wonderful. She 100% deserved the Oscar win, for what it's worth. I wonder who she was up against. Not that I don't think she deserves it. But I'm curious to see who else is in that field. I will I pull that up if you want to um say I, I, else. I actually, Oh, I there we go. Um, so we have Brenda uh, Blethen from Secrets and Brenda. Lies. Never heard of any of those things. It's a um, Diane Keaton in Marvin's Room. Uh, Emily Watson in Breaking the Waves. Okay, that's her only competition, I'd say. And then Kristen Scott Thomas in The English Patient, which is a bad thing. Yeah, I think it's between Francis and Emily. And I, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think I'd fuck with that. No, I agree. Fargo is... Do we want to talk about whether or not the Coen brothers... Do we want to relitigate whether or not the Coen brothers like their characters at all? I don't think it's, I, I think it's not really a helpful discussion to have, to be honest. I don't think it's a matter of whether they like it or not. I think that or like them or not. I think it's more of a matter of they place characters in situations that are They're entirely ill equipped for. Yes. And even the characters I think they do kind of like. Like I think I think they obviously like Marge in this film. Sure, obviously. Um I think they they generally like um what's his name from a serious man? Um the main the main character. Uh, Michael Stuhlbarg. Yes, from... who is constantly put upon and nothing goes right for him. But I think they sure. I think they like him and have sympathy for him. But they also realize that the world doesn't make sense and a lot of awful things happen in it. And a lot of those things happen for no discernible reason. I think they are masters of accidental tragedy. Yeah, there's kind of a there's kind of a, like a, a fatalist streak in the Coen Brothers films. Certainly. Just like sh- just bad shit happens. Yeah, it's like an unavoidable fact of life. Um Lots of bad shit happens in this movie. Um, like Fargo is just one of those movies where it's like, uh, it's like, it's like we could we can talk about like the the climax, which is I th- well, it's an iconic image, but I think it's also kind of emblematic of what we're talking about: re cartoon violence, yes, just flying in the face of the seriousness of the of what's going on, and then like a very very like sort of moving sincere coda. Where if Frances McDormand didn't win the Oscar during the movie, she just locks it right there. I think all of her interactions with um, John Carroll Lynch, who plays her husband, are so sweet and yeah. uh, so, like, boring, but in a wonderful way. So, like, ban- banally kind and banally good. That it's like it, it contrasts oh, incredibly well against the rest of the movie. And it's like there's these two decent people in a world full of fucking idiots. It's like... Um, it's 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 domesticity it's just like you know mm-hmm. you've been with someone for like three decades or whatever and it's like you know it's just it's just nice it's just this is this how it is john carroll lynch incidentally like like definitely on my mount rushmore of like that guy character actors oh certainly 100 percent. like i don't know who rounds it out but like like i think john carroll lynch might be number one with a bullet He's also like this just, is my moment to just get a reckon for this because otherwise no I have no other opportunity to say it is that he's in Channel Zero season two the No End House and I think that that's if if we could nominate like um sh- like short form television or anthology television series for movies I think that's one of the favorite films 
of the past like 10 years and he's incredible okay. in it so highly recommended it, it, even if the first episode seems a little bit too like generic like creepypasta horror for you wait for the like emotional notes to hit and they're they hit like a ton of bricks they're incredible i, I would compare it to like th- thematically to like solaris basically all right um uh, also obviously he was in zodiac certainly incredible in that as well Stole and uh, for, I, I didn't know that he's the one who directed the uh, Harry Dean Stanton vehicle Lucky that came out a couple years ago. Oh, I never saw that. I heard it was good though. I heard it was pretty good. And uh, yeah, David Lynch is in that as well. Ed Begley Jr. Like, listen to this cast. I, I hate <laughs> to digress about a movie that we're never going to talk about and that we haven't seen, but take a look at this starting five for this movie Harry Dean Stanton, David Lynch, Ron Livingston, Ed Begley Jr., and Tom Skerritt. Jesus. That's a hell of a dinner party. It's like John Carroll Lynch has got all his friends together like, hey, we're going to make a movie and you're all going to be in it. <laughs> oh, man. Fargo. F- yeah, Fargo. I, I think the, the, oh, the one thing I, I still want to point out about um, their relationship between um, the, the Gundersons is that yes. a lot of other movies would play that as kind of sad or kind of negative. Or try to portray it as something that it isn't. Whereas this, it's just it's just nice. It's nice in a way that feels unforced and feels totally earned. They're just two people who have kind of boring lives, um, and then and then happen to love each other quite a bit. That's it. And that's that's nice to see in the film. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot like Patterson, honestly. Uh, the Jim Jarmusch film that was uh, yes. a film of the year for Dim the House Lights when it came out. I think it almost visited the house. Unanimous one, yeah. Yeah, I, I, it 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 just cleaned house that year. Yeah. Um. So I think we have um, to figure out which one of these two goes on. Yeah, I was going to say, we're out of time. So what's going to go ahead? Fargo or Full Metal Jacket? I love both these movies. and I've loved these movies for for a very long time. But I got to give the edge to Fargo. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, yeah. I'm I'm, I mean, a, I'm a little bit torn because I, I like both of them a lot. A, it helps knowing that there's already a Stanley Kubrick film to move forward and there's going to be a second one. <laughs> uh, oh, there's going to no, be at least one other one. At least one other one, unless like does, we does both rhyme, lose our minds in the next like year. Does it rhyme with Shmoo Thousand and One: A Space Odyssey? It might. Who who could say? <laughs> I don't want to like say any spoilers for the podcast. Sure. I don't want to sure, say sure, any sure. spoilers for the one of the five films that everyone in the house light says is a perfect five star film. For the listeners, I, those other movies are there's that Alien, uh, the thing, pr- thing, the thing, Upstream and then Bullshane and Carruth movies and a Primer. Yes. So we skew sci-fi a little bit at Dim the House Lights. A little bit. Just a little teeny tiny bit. Because um, like like all of those movies are science fiction films, right? Yes, all of them. To one, to one extent or another they are. So um, uh, if you're- I will agree. Fargo can definitely move forward. Um, it's a great okay. film and I'm really excited to watch it again. I almost watched it again before we spoke this morning, but I didn't have time because I woke up late. We didn't talk about Carter Burwell's score, which is fucking phenomenal. And like I have, I, I got a small gripe. Like Fargo, incidentally, being one of the movies I have liked for the longest, is also one of the oldest DVDs that I have. Fucking, I have a DVD that has no subtitles on it. None. Really? That's weird. None. I know. Even that's like my copy up. of Johnny Mnemonic has subtitles on it. And that's from like 1999 or whatever. Yeah, this is like the MGM, like like standard issue DVD of Fargo, and it has a fucking subtitles on it. Do better, fuckers. Come on. Go back also, in time and tell MGM that. Yes. Uh, but also because the score, like the th- like the theme loops on the menu, and I just left it on for like two hours. <laughs> Moving on. Yes. New matchup. 
ba ba ba. Shiba da ba ba jazz. Sound great, <laughs> great jazz. I'm happy for you. Thank you. Good scatting. Uh, number thirty-five seed in this tournament, City Lights. Number ba ba ba. Let me try that again. Uh, the thirty-five seed, the favorite in this matchup, City Lights, released in nineteen thirty-one, directed by one Charles Chaplin, starring Charlie Chaplin, Virginia Sherrill, Florence Leo, and Harry Myers. Uh, one point five million dollar. Uh, budget five million dollar box office take, pretty good considering there was these are oldie time nineteen thirties dollars. And there's not really there's no Oscar stats on this because it wasn't the Oscars really didn't exist any. at that point, did they? No, they did. They're only a couple years old, but they certainly did exist. Um, but uh, who needs Oscar? Who needs Oscars when you are part of one of the greatest? When you're a part of the God Run of one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, I think that's its own reward. Versus. The 222 seed, Monsters Incorporated, released in 2001, directed by Pete Docter, starring Billy Crystal, John Goodman, Steve Buscemi. Hey, Steve Buscemi shows up twice in the episode. And Mary Gibbs, who plays Boo. Uh, massive worldwide hit. Like, like uh, $150 million to make, and it took in $575 million. It was, those those uh, Pixar movies, they make some money. They make bank. Um... And went one for four at the Oscars, and it won for Best Original Song, netting Randy Newman his first Academy Award in 16 nominations. I, what could have won for Best Animated Feature that year? That It was Shrek, baby! Okay, that's fine. That I, I, I really like Shrek a lot. Yeah, I don't think it's a hot take to say that Shrek is a better movie than Monsters, Inc. Oh, I think that that's I, a very hot take. I don't... I don't think so. Mm, I think that you are overvaluing Shrek in the cultural consciousness and not so much like what human beings think of it. Like, like yes, fa- uh, uh, us millennials love Shrek, but I don't think like grownups do. I think, I mean, I'd have hold to on, go back and on. rewatch. I'd have to go back and rewatch Shrek. It's great. I rewatched I, it recently. It's wonderful. Well, I, hey, I'm just saying I one, of, watch, one of these films has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. One of these films is an 88%. I mean, one of these films is on the IMDb top two fifty. The other one is not. I mean, we've we've spoken ill I'm, about. I want to be clear the, that I'm not insulting Shrek. I I love Shrek, but at the same time, I think I don't think that's that weird to take. I think that well, let's get right into it, and uh, I guess we can start talking about Monsters Inc. Since we're already here, sure. even though it's the underdog. Um, this like of all the Pixar's I've seen, I've seen a good chunk of them. I think I haven't. The only ones I haven't seen are like. Like a handful of the shorts and uh, Cars's two and three, I think I've seen every other. Okay, I think this is the kiddiest one of them that isn't Cars. No, it's not more kiddie than Cars. No, it's uh, yeah, Cars being the kiddie est, but I think Monsters Monsters Inc is right above. I don't quite know what to say because I don't know when I'm supposed to launch into my anti Pixar business. I mean, I mean, you can't. Well, that was all really what I had to say. I mean, my thing is like. Um, well, I guess you could just launch into it now. I mean, well, I think we should. I should say the things I like about this movie first. Okay. Um, I was like, even though it's kind of like it, this is a cool ninety minutes. Is like as far as like DVDs to put on to like placate your kid. It's like aces. I mean, it's, it's like bright and colorful, and it's. I mean, the script is no great shakes, but I really like the gimmick of this film. I think it's a very imaginative gimmick. Um. If and in case you haven't, like, because I hadn't seen Monsters Inc. up until this, uh, this, uh, the, this uh, recording session actually, 
And if you haven't seen it, it's like, so there's a city full of monsters in some kind of like pocket dimension where their source of energy is the the screams of children. Their source of energy is fear, which I think is an awesome gimmick. And it actually does a not not bad amount of of stuff with it. Like it doesn't lean as far into like the sort of minutia of how all that works, preferring just to sort of transpose it into like a generic every town kind of setting. But there's a whole sequence in the third act where it's like basically uh, Steve Buscemi, well, the <laughs> the monster that Steve Buscemi plays and the monsters that Billy Crystal and John Goodman play are basically like dimensional. The monsters that I've played would be a great name for Steve Buscemi's autobiography. The monsters that I've played, yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, because uh, it was so because Steve Buscemi is using a slightly thrown version of his voice. He's putting like a little bit of extra of extra stank on it a little bit. Uh, whereas Billy Crystal is just basically doing Billy Crystal and <laughs> John Goodman Crystal, is. Yeah. It's like ah, God. It's like how about this? Before we go into something else, what's your take on Billy Crystal in general? <laughs> just like just a general as, like, take on Billy Crystal as a um, performer. I like City Slickers. Sure. I think that's a fun movie. I like when Harry met Sally. Sure. I am happy to not see him for a while. Like I, okay. I feel like like if I see Billy Crystal like once every five years, I'm like, yeah, that was nice. I'm glad I got to see Billy Crystal. But if it's any more than that, I don't want to see him ever again. Conversely, I don't think we have enough John Goodman in the universe. We just need that guy. Just needs always to be absolutely. Around. John Goodman can be in love that guy. pretty much anything he wants to be. Um, I I think. I'm going to say a thing that I liked about this movie, and if and I think you can tie that into what I think you're going to say about why you don't like Pixar. Okay, go for it. And it it like I've seen like a bunch of these movies. I've seen most of them, and it only dawned on me this time that there I like the sense of design that all these movies have together as like as like as like art as like art objects, not necessarily as like storytelling devices, but as artistic objects created in the world because they all have kind of the same atomic age ish vibe mm-hmm. like the way that the buildings are and the uh, visual identity of lots of things i think that specifically in monsters inc it's this very well rendered like immaculately designed space right down to like logos and um there's like nixie tubes everywhere and i can really get on board with some of that but the thing that – but with that aesthetic and with that sort of decade as your chief um, visual influence, there's some political stuff underneath that is a little less savory. Yeah, there certainly there is. So, that, so I want you – so I've just, I, I've just like uh, tossed a softball in your direction and I just okay. want to see you crush that sucker into the upper deck. So, um, I'm about to get very political about a bunch of children's films, so I, I apologize ahead of time um, for that, but I think that they're important things to talk about. Um, I think, it, it, let me say a more general complaint. In, first, I don't think that Pixar has made a good movie since 2003 uh, with Finding Nemo. I think that was their last good film. Everything else since then has been mediocre at best. Some of them are abysmal and actively risable. Um, to be fair, I haven't seen Ratatouille. People seem to love Ratatouille quite a bit. But outside That's of that- It's a fun one. I like that one. Um, the problem with uh, – I feel like I'm, I'm going to sound silly because I'm about to use a bunch of like quote-unquote buzzwords in politics. But I'm going to use them very purposefully and with a very specific meaning. So the politics of Pixar films are 
liberal in the sense of capitalist liberalism. They are intensely neoliberal. And I think it's because they come from this era where the individual was first being defined as like a consumer identity. And where the individual... The atomic age. Yes. And the individual is being deified for the first time. At least in Western culture. Um, And because when you look at Monsters, Inc., um, uh, uh, the... The central, it's a central metaphor about, um, what do you, uh, like renewable energy. The central metaphor yes. is about like forms of energy we use, but there's no actual reason, like it doesn't go into, not that I'm saying that a children's movie has to go into this, but there, it doesn't actually say why the, the bad guys don't want to go to this other form of renewable energy because there's no downsides to it it doesn't require any difficulty of change it's literally like it just increases production and that's why it's seen as like a positive thing it's seen as a positive thing not because it helps the environment or not because it's like better for people or like it's more ethical to get or anything like that it's a better thing because it's more efficient well i think if i could just butt in a little teeny tiny bit i i I I think i think boo tries to be that human element in there but doesn't always succeed. I think that has a character and his voice performance. She's fucking adorable. And I thought I would be annoyed sure. with her, but I definitely wasn't. I could have seen way more of Boo. But I think it really tries to push her in there as like, this is the human cost like of scaring someone. Like when she, it, there's a, that scene where, um, what's his name? Sully, uh, like scares, uh, like, uh, a test human like, as a test dummy. Yeah, yeah. For like a, like to show a class how it's done. And she sees that and that terrifies her. But then that's just resolved. She doesn't like stay mad at him. He never does anything to change that. And there's no actual examination of why is the system like this or why did the system come to be? It just kind of exists and we can just do this other thing without any changes and without having to actually change modes of production. Does that make sense? Now that makes sense. And, I mean, I would like. I think, I think this, if, like, if I tied into other, like, we'll talk about Wally. I'm, I'm sure Wally's on this fucking list, isn't it? I'm sure, which is <sighs> a movie that I like and will defend. Um. So there's like, there's Wally. I'm sure that Up is probably on this list. I, actually, I don't think Wally oh, is. Thank fucking Christ. Oh, it no, it <clears throat> is. Derek, it's yeah, my hopes up there for a second. It's at sixty-two, and it's going up against the Truman Show in round one. I don't even like the Truman Show, and that shit's going down. But um. And, like, The Incredibles is obviously, like, this Ayn Rand fantasy. It's such an individualist, like, objectivist fantasy. Everyone's talked about that, and I don't need to go into it. But Wally also displays this kind of... It displays solutions through the system. It displays solutions through neoliberal economics and neoliberal forms of protest. It doesn't actually display what those solutions look like or whether they might be difficult or how those problems came into be in the first place and what the causes are. They just seem... The causes just seem to exist... Like out of thin air, like they just come out of thin air, and no one really had a hand in them, and it's not anyone's responsibility. It just they just happen, and I think that besides the fact that I think the the scripting is generally incredibly weak, I think that in general I'm tired of this aesthetic. Is part of it, like I would rather watch like Over the Hedge than a Pixar movie, um, and Over the Hedge is not a great film. It's got that Paul Westerberg soundtrack though, right? Is that true? I think so. Huh. He did music for one of those. Interesting. Um, but then it, it's there's this recurring theme in Pixar movies that when you watch them, like Inside Out is another one where... Good movie. <laughs> it, it's t- uh, <laughs> I, it was a movie that the more that, sit, that it sits with me, the less I like it. And I know that me and you disagree with this, but I'll say that my perspective on it is that it doesn't actually value the things it says it values. I think it values certain forms of production and certain commodities, but it doesn't actually value experiences. It doesn't actually value 
what sadness might bring to the table. It doesn't view sadness as a legitimate emotion. It views it as a way to get to happiness or as a way to contrast against happiness. And I find that deeply disturbing in a way. Um, but as far as Monsters, Inc. goes, I think it just doesn't do enough with its premise. And I think that it tries to do – it's worse almost to try to do something and then not follow through in it than to not try. And I feel like most Pixar movies try just enough that it's annoying that they don't try harder. I would like to issue an errata before we continue. Uh, the animated film that Paul Westerberg wrote songs for was not Over the Hedge, but Open Season. Maybe I should watch Open Season today. I'm going to – I'm gonna download an open season torrent right now. It looks terrible. I mean, I mean, it's your life. I mean, you, you do the hell you want. You do what the hell you want. Um, I mean, I, th- I holy I mean, shit. There's been five open season movies. Sorry, four open season movies. Oh shit, really? N- newest one came out in 2015. Open season scared silly. Uh, it looks like it's a direct video joint though. All the better. It looks. It looks super. Like really super. Like, it doesn't star anyone from the first movie. <laughs> you mean the fuck? Donnie Lucas and William Townsend aren't from the first movie? Who the fuck is Melissa Sturm? Anyway. Um, I mean... So, good news. Melissa Sturm has been in a lot of bad movies. Um, and I a mean, couple good movies. Um, but she was in the Emoji movie. She ugh. was in Smurfs The Lost Village. She was hmm. in Surf's Up 2 Wave Mania. It looks like she's oh, the person the you go one. to when your sequel can't get the original people. Is, is Surf Mania the WWE one with The Undertaker and Paige as penguins? Um, let me look. <laughs> Surf up to Wave Mania. An animated comedy that features WWE superstars providing their own voices while matching up against talking animals. There you go. John um, Cena is in that film. Vince yes. McMahon is in that film. Yeah, John... Yeah, oof, man. I got... Uh, I, I got opinions How's on How's the wrestling XFL doing? Is the XFL ever coming back? XFL is supposed to be coming back next year, but it's not looking super rosy because there was a minor league football league that yeah, fucking went yeah, yeah. under this year. The uh, the uh, Let's pour one out for the Association of American Football. I guarantee you this is the only podcast got, that is a not a sports podcast serious, that will talk about this. A lot of people got serious injuries for no reason. Oh, man. God, I sports like are fucked up. I like I like football, but I also hate CTE, so I'm kind of a, I'm kind of up shit creek a little bit. <laughs> Um, I think uh, we're out of time for Monsters Inc. Is there anything else you want to say? Because I know I know I monopolized a lot of that time. I mean, with a general Pixar critique, so hopefully I don't have to repeat that in the future. You, I mean, you probably will because we've got Incredibles two on this list. We've got Wally on this list. We've got Finding Nemo on this list. That's a good. We've movie. got that's fine. We've got we've got a few. We we will be able to relitigate this in the future. Believe you I, me. I like Toy Story, Finding Nemo, and the Bug one. Those are the uh, good Bugs, Pixar movies. A Bug's Life. Yes. Um. I like most of them, because, oh, <laughs> I mean, I got my reasons. Yeah, for sure. But uh, I think this one we can agree on a little bit more. Well, we kind of agreed on this last one. It was like, fine. Yeah, it was fine. I think I think there's moments of it that work really well, and there's moments of it that are bad. Like, I think there's really like, bad. I mean, I don't know about Billy Crystal as a voice actor, but there's a lot of good gags. There's a lot of good, like, well-staged gags. And uh, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. But I think uh, our favorite in this uh, in this matchup is a little bit more than fine. Let's talk about City Lights. Whenever I read or hear someone say City Lights, I want to say it like like Borat. City Lights. Exactly. Thank you for okay. doing, so doing that so I didn't have to do that. <laughs> um, so this is the beginning of Chaplin's God Run. 
because he does this before modern times, which he does before uh, Great Dictator, mm-hmm. which and then he follows that up with Monsieur Verdoux and Limelight, which like I haven't seen those last two ones, but by all accounts, this is the beginning of one of the great five movie runs of all time. I have um, Limelight on Blu-ray. Have had it for three years and I haven't watched it yet, but I I mean to at some point. Ain't that the way it goes? Yeah. Like I like I own a Thin Red Line on 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 disc, and I have not watched it. That's absurd. I mean. There's there's a lot there's a lot of movies out there I I, I haven't seen that I should. To be well. fair, most movies are not Thin Red Line, but that's for a different day. Yeah, I would say generally speaking, all other movies other than Thin Red Line are Thin Red Line. Or I fucked that up. You did, but I got I get, I get what you're going for. Do you want to give it a shot, or are we are we good? I'll try it again. To be fair, every movie that isn't the Thin Red Line isn't the Thin Red Line. Yeah, that's better. It's also funnier. Okay. I like the first version better. Yeah, but it's false. <laughs> well, a lot of false things are funny. Most jokes are false. Most jokes are false. That's true. Um, so, so this movie opens up. Th- this is what I'll say about City Lights. It opens up with like a statue being dedicated, like being donated to the people by who look to be some well-to-do bourgeois types, right? And. Uh, you see fucking Charlie Chaplin as a tramp, like sleeping cradled in the arms of, of, of peace and prosperity as it were. Mm-hmm. And it kind of starts the same way modern times starts because modern times starts with like the, the communist march, right? Yes. Yes. So well, after he gets kicked out of work, after he gets kicked out of work. So there's the promise of this kind of starting the same way, but it's mostly just general slapstick. Not that yeah, that's I think bad. That- it's not bad at all. I think there's there's pretty much every gag in here hits. Um, yeah. But I did I did say to you before we started that I the main problem I had with this film is more just that it it doesn't feel as as of a whole as sure. his other great films do. There's a lot it of feels vignetti. Yeah, yeah. Like he had a lot of good ideas for bits, but didn't quite have the thing to string them together. So he came up with this kind of like this central narrative that just barely ties all these incidents into like their own moments. Um, and that narrative is obviously of his relationship with the blind flower salesman, uh, which oh, is, I think, one of the more famous and like renowned romances in film. Do you think I, I would, that'd be correct? I think, on the strength of the ending, just yes. that last scene, I think yes. so. Um, uh, James Ag called that the best acting ever committed to celluloid, and I mean, sure, I mean, it's it's in the conversation. I, I'm going to feel like like the bad guy here, but I, I actually feel like Chaplin in that final moment is not as – he's not doing the work. I don't know. I think he nails it. Some, it's, 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 something about like, like the smile he has seems more mischievous than it does like anything else. It's, it's, it, it reads weird to me is what I'll say. Ah, uh, well, I mean I'm not going to say you read it – like you, you, your brain read it weird, but I don't know. I, I, I think I got it as intended. But I do think like like – even even accounting for that, I think it's an incredible ending. It's just that there's a lot of scenes that don't necessarily lead to that ending exactly. Like there's the whole there's, most of this movie is with the the rich the drunk rich guy, right? Yes. Which has fucking no relationship to anything else that happens in the film. The only thing that it has to do with the rest of the movie is that that's how the tramp gets money. Yes. <laughs> but the real thing that has fuck all to do with the movie, even though it does tie back to getting money is the whole the the whole boxing scene yeah which is it's hilarious it's it's wonderful like movement uh it generally feels balletic 
uh, in yeah, moments. Yeah, great choreography on that. Yeah, but if you took that out of the film and just threw anything else into that moment, it wouldn't affect like the the story structure of the film. It would affect the film as a whole because that's a great moment. I think that's what people remember from the film. Mm-hmm. But man, it is not related to like anything else. Yeah, I mean, it's basically so like there's a whole su- there's a whole like subplot in this. There's like three subplots in the in in this uh, in this boxing part. There's uh, the tramp's initial opponent who gets fucking stung by the feds yes. and just leaves, <laughs> and there's the other dude with his good luck charms who leaves and comes back knocked out, thus rendering seemingly those good luck charms useless. And most of the fight is like basically charlie chaplin putting the ref between him and his opponent which is hilarious it's great yeah, certainly and no the I mean, whole bit we're sh- like we're like the the rope for the for the bell gets wrapped around his neck and as he goes back to his corner it rings so they start fighting again but then he when he gets up it rings again so they go back to it. it's it's great it's stuff derek it's great stuff i mean i don't i don't think we're being exactly controversial when we say that charlie chaplin is a very funny physical comedian yeah and i don't think we're being uh controversial either saying that Charlie Chaplin might be one of the greatest filmmakers to ever pick up a camera. Certainly. I mean, certainly we've showered him with nothing but praise on, on this show. I mean, we, uh, we, we ushered uh, Modern Times into round two way back when, what feels like fucking years ago. And um, yeah, I think this movie is not on the magnitude of uh, Modern Times. And, and also I think uh, a, a thing that's that does matter oh, to me, and that actually reminds me of when we talked about um, Chaplin versus Keaton, is that yes. Keaton's gags were relatively apolitical, whereas Chaplin's weren't. And this City Lights has some political undertones, yes. but it's not as fully developed as it is in modern times or in The Great Dictator, obviously, or even in something like The Gold Rush. Um, I think sure, it's not sure. as fully developed as those instances. And what it does say is a little bit muddled besides... Hey, poverty's bad. Yeah. It's like I'm I I agree with. I <laughs> that is something I am I agree poverty is bad, but um it doesn't say it in the way that uh Gold Rush does. It doesn't say it in the way that Modern Times does. Don't trust the rich because they are finicky. Also, uh alcoholism as a device, I guess. Yeah. That was mm, <laughs> mm. I mean <clears throat> I mean, I mean, you know, poverty's perfect. It's okay. Yeah, for sure. I feel like I've been down on this movie when it's like it's still a great movie. It's pretty good. I mean, it's more than pretty like, good. It's like, great. Like the, the nature of this podcast is I end up being down on a lot of things I like just because um, saying over and over again, "Hey, Charlie Chaplin's very funny," is not as effective as saying, "Hey, Charlie Chaplin got some things wrong." Yeah, it's not great podcasting. But does yeah. that mean that I should like swing the pendulum the other way? That I should like overpraise shit and then sort of walk myself back? Um, I don't think that that's a, that's a good way for you to go. I think you'll end up regretting that immediately as soon as you start doing it. Yeah. God, I know we I know we've said this before on the pod, but I think it bears repeating that the great dictator we take care of a bit further up the bracket, and it's up against Mad Max Fury Road. Which that's is gonna be just, fucking rough. Which is just a dog shit matchup because both those movies rule. <laughs> both those movies are a incredibly entertaining and b like staunchly political. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that it'll feel that one's is going to be maybe like the hardest in terms of like saying goodbye to one of those films is going to be really difficult. So you heard it here first, anti-fascism versus feminism. Who comes out on top? <laughs> Stay tuned. If we choose one, then we like Nazis. <laughs> if we choose the other, then we like misogynists. There's no, there's no winning, Derek. I guess not. 
I guess I should have known. I, I guess I should have known signing up for this goddamn podcast that I'd be made a scapegoat. Um, but we're an hour and six minutes in this podcast. And I feel like we should decide Monsters Inc. or City Lights. Are you going to upset the balance of things? Are you going to upset what you've said in the same episode and vote Monsters Inc. forward? See, another thing you do is you set me up for these choices that you know I'm not going to take because City Lights is clearly the best film of the two. Hey, so there's there's, there's some people who would argue otherwise. I mean. I mean, certainly not the users of like IMDb children, for who, example. Children would. You like, know what? I don't know about that. I don't think children th- are into are into city lights. I think if you sit a kid in front of like a more slapsticky Chaplin joint, maybe it's like kids love the Three Stooges too. I'm not saying that Charlie Chaplin is on that level, but like if you want like a political Charlie Chaplin, Chaplin, not as funny as the Three Stooges. You heard it here first, as- folks. Not as dedicated to the ga- to violent gags as the Three Stooges were. Not as dedicated to being incredibly unfunny as the Three Stooges. <laughs> That's my own editorializing. I apologize, but okay. But uh, no, I think I mean that that may just be me talking and hoping. But no, I think maybe not. They would probably not be as into it as Monsters Inc. Is there a, is there a Charlie Chaplin app? I think kids would like that. Chaplin A P P L I N. Ooh, I hate that. Yep. That's that means someone's gonna make it. Never mind, so let's wrap this. What was that movie? Inappropriate comedy. Oh yeah, the Shamwell guys movie. I did not see that. I but did. It's bad. It's how is it? It's bad, Derek. <laughs> um. So here's my letterbox review for it. Um. <laughs> I wish I could somehow give this an even lower rating than I gave movie forty three because I I am dumbfounded that a movie could ever be worse than that. Yet here we are. My life is poor for-, for watching this movie. It didn't just waste my time. It retroactively ruined other good times I've had. Uh, yeah, Movie 43 is a movie that I did see and was complete dog shit. Yeah, so imagine if there's a movie that's worse than that. Man. Although, Doesn't Adrian Brody play like a like a gay, dirty Harry <laughs> in this? Yeah, he does. Huh. And Rob Schneider's in it. Lindsay Lohan's in it. I think Lindsay Lohan doesn't really do any, like, comedy. She just, like... I think if I remember if I remember correctly, I could be remembering wrong because I saw this like years ago, and thankfully a lot of it has left my mind. Sure. But there's one part where I want to say someone has an app where you can watch like the bottom of like a sewer grate that has like like air coming through it. So that way, when Lindsay Lohan walks across it, you see her panties, and that's like the joke. Okay, man. Yeah, sounds probably pretty fucking dire, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So wrapping up today's uh, fucking thing. Uh, so congratulations to uh, Fargo and City Lights. You will face each other in round two. And on the next episode, we get to contend with other movies, such as The Sting versus No Country for Old Men, the oft-invoked No Country for Old Men, and Leon the Professional versus Knights of Caribbean. So we're going to get foreign, too. So... I just looked up. Uh, I we can cut this out if it's not gonna if it's not fun. But I did look up the Wikipedia page for inappropriate comedy, and this is sure. like it's like having the worst parts of my memory just ripped out of me and like thrust back <laughs> into my like conscious brain. So uh, there's flirty Harry, which is what you were thinking of. Okay, um, sure. With the gay, dirty Harry thing. There's sure. black ass, which is a jackass spoof, but with like black guys. That's the whole bit. That's the whole bit. So it's just like. Black dudes doing stunts. Except, like, not, not like, stunts as much as it is, like, if I remember correctly, one of them walks into, like, a, I, and it's also not, like, real. It's it's clearly staged. But there's, like, oh, so one. It's, oh, it's, like, it's, like, racial stunts. Yes, yes, yes. 
Okay. Like, if I remember correctly, there's one... That I, I feel bad for saying these words that are about to come, come out of my mouth. I mean, this is not going to make it into the episode. <laughs> there's, there's a bit where one of them goes into what is clearly a fake abortion clinic with a coat hanger. That that's like the joke. Oh my god! Yeah, and then and then there's another. That's inappropriate. <laughs> there's another a bit um, where Rob Schneider and Michelle Rodriguez are um, re- review porno. Okay, I mean that's not that's, that weird. It, it's not very funny. And then okay. um, yeah, so looking at this, literally that whole Lindsay Lohan bit I said, that's the entire bit. There's nothing else to her bit at all. She just stands on an air vent, and then um, the ShamWow guy watches Monroe her. Thing, and the ShamWow guy watches her underwear. <laughs> yeah. And then the last bit is um, called The Amazing Racist, and it's a spoof on The Amazing oh. Race. No, you don't say. And um, Ari Shafir and his camera... I'm just going to read what it says. Ari Shafir and his cameraman go around the city showcasing extremely racist and offensive stereotypes against Asians, African Americans, Arabs, Hispanics, and Jews. It is heavily implied that all of Shafir's doomings were not rehearsed and done to random people on the street. Obviously, that's a lie. Sure. Sell the sizzle, so, not the steak. I, I feel depressed now, like, thinking about this film again. Well, thankfully, you won't have to after this, I guess. Until <laughs> until we do Middlebrow Madness Season 2, Inappropriate Comedy Edition. Sponsored what by kind of- Inappropriate Comedy. Uh, <laughs> I don't want the Shamo guy's money. <laughs> okay. You've Folks, we're here for Bad Dragon money. We're not here for ShamWow money. You can keep that shit. You seem like a horrible human being. Bad Dragon, you're cool. Yeah, you're yeah, def- definitely cooler than the ShamWow guy. So, let's wrap this shit up. Yes. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Derek underscore G. You can find Isabel on Twitter at Space Jam Fan. You can find the pod on Twitter at Pod. You can drop us a line uh, using electronic mail, middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. Um... I guess you can follow us on Letterboxd if you want. Oh, yeah, I yeah. Mean, uh, mine is Derek underscore G, and yours is The Traps Draw, right? Sure is. All right. And uh, I believe you had something to uh, close the show with. I did, yeah. Um, as always, or not as always, we don't do this as much as we're like supposed to in terms of like social media and getting our shit out there. But yep. um, please rate and review us on iTunes. Um, it does help a lot. So far, we have five five-star ratings, which is five more than we deserve, but we appreciate any, every <laughs> one of them. Um, and we Thank have, you very much. Yes, and we have two very nice reviews. These aren't going to be funny so much as they are just like they were very sweet. So um, one review by Young Cushy uh, says, I began listening because I think the hosts are enjoyable people with interesting informed perspectives, but I've also found this podcast to be genuinely useful as I've always avoided what actually makes up the top 250 bro list. Um, this gave me a chance to analyze some of the gems that are buried within and build a deeper understanding of film history. So that's very nice. And Thank then um, it's me, Callum. Uh, their review oh, is t- yeah is re- is titled one of the few good film podcasts. Um, really? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and says this is the spiritual successor to Reloading the Canon itself, a spiritual successor to Thirty Below. Thank you for remembering that because I don't every single time I we those do are this. your shows. Um, and however, while both previous podcasts covered movies outside of the world of well-loved films, Middlebrow Madness is a sprawling odyssey through the top two hundred fifty. It's a delight to hear Michelle and Derek goof their way through some genuinely interesting and novel criticism of these extremely well-trodden topics. So thank you to both of you. And if you want yes. your review read on the podcast, either leave a really mean one or a really nice one. <laughs> or leave one that just describes the podcast as a podcast. Like, just leave us a message that says, uh, this is a show where Derek and Isabel talk about movies. Sometimes? Movies and come. That's our two oh, subjects. God. No, you said the magic word. You said it earlier in this episode, to be fair. 
Well, I said the word nut, and then you said cum <coughs> afterwards. Nut. Let's cum, get things straight. What came uh, first, the nut or the cum? Oh my the God. classic that philosophical note, discussion. I said on that note. Um, actually, I think you have to start. <laughs> oh, uh, I, I've been uh, Isabel Arf. And I've been Derek Gunning. Have movies be jolly. Have movies be jolly. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>